A little over a week ago, London Irish became the third English club to be suspended from the Gallagher Premiership and go into administration. Joining myself, Brendan Gallagher and Nick Powell today to react and discuss the fallout as well as talk about the structure of the Premiership itself is London Irish's all-time top try scorer Topsy Ojo. Quite a big one today. Obviously, about 10 days ago now, we had the news of London Irish being suspended from the Premiership. Still recovering, none more so than today's special guest uh, joining me, Nick Powell, Brendan Gallagher, a London Irish great, the record holder for most appearances and tries in Topsy Ojo. Um, before we get into it all, Topsy, where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm at home in my makeshift office, also known as my daughter's bedroom. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's also the coolest room in the house at the minute. So, <laughs> is daughter at uni or is she just? No, she's at school. She's at school. So yeah, three fifteen. She'll be home. So, She'll be yeah. finished by then. Yeah, yeah, while she's away, I can use her room for work. So. <laughs> Very resourceful. What is your summer shaping up to look like? Um, so I've got one last bit left of work. I've got the Premier Fifteens final next week Saturday. So looking forward to that one. July is quiet, um, and then I start back with World Cup warm-ups in August and then build the way all the way through to the World Cup then, hopefully. So, yeah, there'll be a nice window of about six weeks where I can kind of just switch off and relax and have a bit of a breather because I'm sure, as you guys know, once once the season starts back up, it's fairly full-on. I mean, I think, when did I start? I probably started first week of September last year, possibly a bit earlier, and here we are now to the back end of June. So, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's a long one, but I you know it's it, it, it's, it I I enjoy it. I enjoy being involved in it for sure. Are you planning on being in France in October, November time? Yes, that is the plan. Um, just it would be great to be involved. Um, so yeah, just waiting for final confirmation. But yeah, all all being well, I should be out there in some capacity, which would be great. That would be fantastic. Well, look, let's. I think let's get straight into it. Um. Obviously, London Irish. How how are you processing all of it? Yeah, it's um, it's a funny one, isn't it? I mean, obviously, last week very very rough, like in terms of Tuesday the the uh, suspension, Wednesday administration, and then I guess the fallout from that. Um, I'm better now, and I guess with a lot of things, you know, time makes these things a bit a bit easier to deal with of course you know you, you still sometimes you're like is this real is it happening um but I guess as you've seen now this week with you know players starting to sign for new clubs and that getting announced it kind of does tell you that this is happening and obviously after Tuesday Wednesday the most pressing issue was what okay you've got 100 plus people now who have been made unemployed they need jobs they need to find work because they've got stuff to pay for you know mortgage rent bills food whatever so that then becomes the issue of figuring out what what the immediate future looks like so i guess as typical you do in rugby you know everyone talks about resilience and that you kind of right okay what do i need to do in this instance you figure it out um and then maybe you can then go back and deal with all the other stuff so um but it's it's still very surreal like you know i've been at the club most days since last tuesday and you know, guys are still there and around, but it is you kind of you just don't know what to say because you know it's happening, but it still doesn't quite feel real. Um, I guess once the fixtures then now get announced, that will probably be another one that makes it more real and bring you like, okay, Irish aren't in the Premiership next year, and then obviously once the games start as well, 
I think that's when it will start to hit a lot of people a bit more. So there'll probably be a few more hurdles to get through with this thing. Um, like I say, the priority now is making sure everybody that was working in the club at the time it happened is okay and they've got stuff to move on to. Can I ask what you've been doing at the club since the announcement last Tuesday? Uh, the biggest one, just, just talking to people, like, you know, just kind of lending each other support, figuring out is there anything really we can do to kind of help each other? I mean, I guess the biggest one is looking after maybe the younger guys in particular. Because, I mean, we kind of saw earlier with Worcester and Wasp, you know, some of the players will be okay. They'll find clubs very, very quickly because they'll be high demand. But for others, it will be a lot more difficult. Um, we've got uh, Irish. There's a couple of young guys who are at the start of long-term injuries. So if all of a sudden their insurance is gone, their physio is gone, their rehab is gone, they've got no chance of getting a club unless someone takes an absolute punt on them. But it's a very difficult scenario to be in. So those are the guys that you kind of really look out for. Um, there's guys that have invested decades into that club you know Kieran McCarthy Jackie Roy Kelly Aidy who work in the off-field team who the club's been their life for a long long time so again it's like you know you know that they now need to move on but it's like how do you still process that so again it's just been just being around each other listening talking and I guess just trying to figure out a way through this I think you're a great person to potentially provide insight into the behind the scenes stuff um, obviously, Mick Crossan has said he can't afford to keep bankrolling the club. Um, and that's maybe quite a simplistic overview of the whole process. So just flash back to two weeks, three weeks ago and before, and just talk about your own involvement, your own um, movements in the process and what was done to give it every possible chance, but also I guess maybe there was a point when you personally saw, I know there was the potential for the American consortium, but when was the point where you were just like, okay, this is going to happen now? Uh, so maybe I'll start at the end and work backwards. Um, I'd say at the point where staff were only paid 50% of their wages off the back of salaries having been missed at the end of April, that was kind of when you thought, okay, this is way more serious than we all thought because the messages that everybody was receiving was that the deal is going well, we're nearly there, we're nearly there. It's just a matter of time. And, you know, this process probably started way back in October. So you think right at the death, it, I mean, deals take a long time to get negotiated. You know, the conversations that I, I wouldn't have any information of in terms of what it takes to pull a deal of this size together, but the messages being received from above was it's looking good. It's progressing. We're getting closer and closer. Then the first major hiccup really is that salaries don't get paid. And then there's pressure on the last game in terms of the players saying, right, well, we're not going to play it because if we've not been paid, our insurance is at risk. So that, get, that then gets resolved and you think, right, okay, again, just a hiccup, nothing to worry about. It'll be fine the next month. And then it gets closer and closer and you can't, Kind of you hear a few whispers of the oh we might not, the staff might not get paid um and then it kind of drops that okay the staff and the players have agreed to a 50 percent pay uh 50 percent salary they didn't agree to that that was just put on them um the players may have been involved i don't know that for definite but i can say for sure from the staff perspective that they weren't consulted about paying 50 percent um and then the RFU deadline sets in and you think, right, you know, there's a week to rectify this. And for me, definitely at that point, 
I, I've been way optimistic all the way through this, but that was a point where I thought this might actually not happen. Of course, you hope and wish it will, um, but you kind of thought it's really bad. And it did have a lot of similarities to, you know, hearing guys from Worcester and Worcester, sorry, in particular, talking about those last days and saying just a lot of false promises, a lot of false promises, a lot of, you know, messages saying, you know, we've communicated to the players and staff. There was very little, if any, communication. And even those last weeks, you know, you pop in and try and talk to the off-field team and everybody was in the same boat. You know, I was being asked, do I know anything? And knew absolutely nothing. Knew nothing. You're just waiting for news. And a lot of the time, the news would actually appear in the press before staff would even read about it. That was almost the go-to for any breaking news, which I guess tells you the story of how things really declined. So... Yeah, it's been a, a long saga, like I say, which kind of started way back in October time and has drawn out all the way to this kind of sorry conclusion. And again, you think, like I say, I don't know how these deals operate, you know, from how they start to how they finish. But my gut absolutely tells me that it could have been done, if not with this investment, with a different investment. There was plenty of time to do it. Um, and yeah, that's how we've ended up where we are. How do you feel when you go to the club and you see, obviously, the fantastic facilities that are still there, the gates you've walked through, you know, the try line you've scored at however many times? What sort of meaning does that carry now off that, you know, obviously the heritage of the club itself, your involvement with it, that was obviously incredibly meaningful before. How has that changed now in the past 10 days or so and more? Um, it's probably grown, if anything, you know, because like I say, you very quickly switch mentality from, I guess, an emotional response, you know, you're sad, you're angry, you're frustrated, and probably still have a, a bit of that. But it's definitely more now, what happens next. And, you know, from my personal point of view, it's hoping and kind of pushing the message that there is a brilliant facility, primed and ready to go for the right person to now pick it up and maybe take it on to even greater heights. You know, the Hazelwood building is great. The amateurs are there. You've got the juniors and the minis and there's hundreds and thousands of the people still involved and actually relying on that that property. So as much as everything that's happened in the last 10 days or so, actually, okay, the most important thing from my perspective now is a buyer walking through the doors and saying, I want to pick it up and run with it. Nopsy, can you just clear up for us who actually owns that? Because when Sunbury was sold for a very considerable amount, you bought the new site, you developed a new site. My understanding was that that was for the amateur club and the amateur club own it, but I'm not sure I've got that entirely right. So whose capital asset is that? Yeah, we might have to fact check. So as I understand it now, London Irish Holdings owns Hazelwood, the building, the ground, everything. They're the majority. There are two companies. I can't remember off the top of my head what the other one is called. It's I think actually it's London Irish Scottish Richmond. So there's two parties, but London Irish Holdings is the majority shareholder. They're the controlling party, so they own everything. So, so does that mean the amateur club re remains entirely uh, as, as the free use, not the free use, the use of those facilities, the pitches, the bars, that is still accessible to the London Irish Amateur Club? As it stands, yes, because they have a long-term lease on the building itself. I want to say 15 years, if I think. I think that's 15 say. years rings a bell. Um, so they have rights to the building and they are themselves a completely separate independent company. So I guess the issue for them will be who buys it now, you know, 
I'd be surprised if a developer buys it because I know before we got it, um, Chelsea tried to come in and buy it and yeah. it would be a developer's dream, but I think they would it would be a nightmare to try and get that through council permissions because of all the green. So there's a, hopefully a bit of protection there, but that is the worry, you know. Um, the administration... But if somebody bought it, would that then be used to pay off creditors? I mean... Well, and this was kind of the point. Um, yeah. The pressing issue now for the creditors is finding the best person who's going to pay off the debt and wants to buy the asset. You know, it doesn't matter what their background is or, you know, what they want to do with it. If they satisfy those criteria, that's their major concern. Uh, I say major concern, but that's that's their role, is to find... That's a responsibility, isn't it, to, to, yeah. to meet creditors as much as possible. Yeah, so as much as I can want and wish it to be somebody rugby to come and pick it up again, it could be anyone. Um, so that's why, like I say, from my point of view now, whenever anyone asks me, it's this is what is there. Yes, from a professional point of view, it's gone at the minute, but there is still so much that somebody could do so much good with not just in a rugby perspective, but in the community as well. The foundation are there as well. Um, so hopefully the right person gets the message and walks through the doors if they haven't already. Yeah. Tomsey, I just wanted to ask, um, do you, what do you think of the RFE deadline that was put in place? Do you think it was too arbitrary? Because you talk about all the potential that the club has. And actually, you know, there's still a hugely, a huge amount of value that can be extracted from the club. Um, but, Without the P share or the fact that they're in the Premiership anymore, you know, w why did the RFU have to set a deadline that was at the end of May? Do you think that was too arbitrary? Do you think it was too early? Because you said they had enough time to get the deal over over the line, but surely a couple more weeks, maybe a month, would have would have helped that even more. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I I I don't know why that deadline was put in, but you know, if you think to doing everything you can to help a club out. Um, yes, you could have applied more pressure in terms of making sure everybody got paid their full salary, but if yeah. that could have been put in, they could easily have been given till the end of this month because the fixtures aren't actually due until June 16th or sometime mid-July, mid sorry, mid-July. Okay. So actually, obviously you can provisionally have stuff in place, but you could say, right, okay, if you can get the staff paid in full, you've got till the end of June, which would have been another, what, three and a half weeks? And again, that's, I don't know how the deals work, but if you said to the American Consortium, right, you've got three days, if the money's not here, you're out, and we're going to go to market, and yes, it's short time, but we'll try and find somebody in that three weeks, then at least you're kind of doing everything you can. Um, that kind of initial window came about out of nowhere. I don't really know the reasoning for it, and I've not heard any reasoning to kind of justify why that deadline was set i'm all i understand wanting to know the plan but there was enough time like you if you need to you could do things very very quickly um and i think definitely irish could have been given till the end of june to make this happen does that make it hurt even more the fact that you know in the case of wasps and worcester wasps had like nine figure debts um and worcester given the the everything around that it was always going to be hard to to sell that off does it make it even more painful to think, you know, we we could easily still be going? Yeah, yeah, I'd say, and definitely in the early part, in the middle parts of last week, when you're kind of trying to wrap your head around this, that was one of the the things that was talked about a lot, you know, in terms of more time could have been given. Absolutely, you know, and whether something would have mattered to it, you don't know, but. And hope and the false promises is probably one of the things that also made this worse towards the back end. But 
you know, if you said to the players and the staff, right, you've been paid, we bought ourselves three and a half weeks, would most have gone for that? I'd say yes, because of what they invested into the club, particularly in the last 12 months in terms of the finish they had, you know, on the verge of the playoffs, Premiership Cup final again, back in Europe at a higher seeding. So it's been the best season they've had in a long time. So it was a huge drive to kick on and see what they could do in the coming years. And you look at the talent that was coming through. So again, in the spirit of let's do everything we can, why wouldn't you in that moment? Brendan, can I ask um, what you make of the single benefactor model? You know, a lot of criticism has been made of the fact that clubs can't just depend on someone being able to basically fund everything and you've got Bruce Craig with Bath, you've got Steve Lansdowne at Bristol, you've got Tony Rowe at Exeter. Is this even more ominous than Wasps and Worcester in the, in what it represents because there are so many other clubs with that model? It's a bit of a catch-22 that the game's got itself into at the moment. Um, the fact is, is, for all the good developments in English rugby, uh, it hasn't club rugby at premiership level hasn't kicked on like we hoped it should. And we thought it would get bigger after 2003, 2007, actually, England get to the final. Um, and then it's it's been, the last 10, last decade has been difficult. And the market isn't there yet. The, the, the mass crowds aren't there yet. The advertising isn't there yet. The big, big TV deal isn't there yet. So that, it's very difficult to run a self-funding club when those elements aren't quite in place. Therefore, the temptation is to look for and rely on the big investor. Um, and that seems to me at the moment, the only way you can really, while also while all the time wanting to get the model that works, the reality is, is you've got to have a Steve Lansdowne paying the bills, um, providing the new facilities. Uh, and that's not a good place to be because at the moment, for a start, there are only so many people that wealthy who, who can invest they are out there but why would you invest in premiership rugby at the moment if the first of all you have to take over 20 30 40 50 million pound debts either pay them off or secure them and then if you are you know very seriously wealthy you cannot bring your money to bear there's a five million pound salary cap plus marquee player you can't go and buy in three or four players at a million pound a year you can't make your money work you can't make it sweat because you have to progress at the financial capability of the weakest team. You know, the salary cap is set at 5 million, which is not a huge amount of money to fund uh, a professional sports squad. But that's what it's been set at because that's what it's been deemed, you know, most can afford. So but if you've got the big investors, they want to come in and spend more than that. They want to invest more than that. So it's a really, really difficult situation. You almost want to scrap everything and start again, but that would be so difficult. I don't think that's realistically that can happen so there's some serious heads have got to be banged together in the next couple of months or you fear the worst the steps been taken in the last um week or so a new sporting commission which i gotta say well i don't think any of us really understand too much about it. it's chaired by nigel melville um tom wood's also involved and it's basically to not ensure but help progress the governance of these clubs topsy what do you understand of how that's going to work if if anything more than what i've just said <laughs> not as much as you i don't think i mean i like i say I, I i had a busy day yesterday but i caught the release of that so i saw it briefly and obviously in previous conversations 
I guess, obviously what Brendan was talking about in terms of how you rectify things going forward, I, I guess a more stringent governance was part and parcel of that. Um, just giving us clarity, a bit of direction in terms of where we're going um, and actually a board where decisions can be made quicker and new ideas or new structures implemented quicker so that we can actually look at, right, how do we take the product which is delivering on the pitch and build around it and add to it and add value because at the moment, you know, they're worlds apart. You know, the product on the pitch is great. The players are doing their absolute best and, you know, on a weekend, we love being there, but then in the week, it's one headache after another. You're trying to firefight, you're trying to problem solve. So I hope that this is, I guess, one of the first steps in terms of, right, let's really get our, our heads around everything that's happened in recent times and figure out what the first step forward is. And better governance was is something that everybody's mentioned. So hopefully this is step one. Do you think that's helpful in... I've 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 wondered. We asked this with Wasps and Worcester, and Worcester particularly. Obviously, a lot could have been done differently. With London Irish, maybe part of the reason it's so ominous is because there isn't that feeling that all that much could have been gone too different, could have gone too differently, or been done too differently. But one example that's come up a few times is Adam Coleman being on nine hundred thousand a year, for example. But do you think that's going to help other Premiership clubs? Is to have that, like you say, stringent. This is how a cl club should be run, which the RFU doesn't seem to have offered a great deal of. Yeah, well, again, it's because of how rugby's been structured for many, many years, you know, they are independent businesses. So there's actually, as much as they're part of a league and a union, there's only so much direct influence you can have. So hopefully if the commission now are able to set out a couple of key guidelines in terms of, right, these are actually what clubs need to adhere to, then you can kind of start to hold teams to account, you know, whether it's from, you know, strict policing of the salary cap, making sure that, you know, revenues and expenditure match each other so that teams aren't spending above their means because, like, you know, obviously you referenced the Adam Coleman thing. And if I remember right, for a while, you know, Irish didn't really spend up to the salary cap because they were trying, you know, to be within their means and, you know, to, to try and become more sustainable. But, I guess in trying to be become a more successful team, they went after some players and they started to spend a bit more money and it did make a difference on the pitch. I mean, obviously Adam's been out injured for a while, unfortunately, but when he was on the pitch, you could see what Irish had paid for. You could see the value in spending money on a world-class player, a proven international who will go out and deliver. But now we're here, it's like, right, was that, the best use of the money or again should we have stayed i mean it, it's easy to play that game now and look at hindsight but maybe in that is a little snippet of if you spend too much and you're not recouping that especially in terms of you know gate revenues and bums on seats and that then at some point the, the depths are going to stack up and you know as you've mentioned you know some clubs are happy because they do have the benefactor that wants to do that other clubs say no we are going to spend within our means and if that means that, you know, we don't have 10 to 15 England internationals and, you know, we're growing slowly, that's what we'll do. But that's right for us. And, you know, looking at everything now, maybe that should have been the way things should have been attacked from many years ago to stop us getting to where we are now. But, but, but even that's a bit tricky, isn't it, uh, Topsy? Because, you know, one assumes that even if we don't know if 900,000 man is correct, but even if that was spent on Adam Coleman, overall, you were within the salary cap or you yeah. came in on the salary cap. 
So that can't be considered, you know, over expenditure because that is the given amount. Yeah. yeah. What I wonder sometimes over a lot of clubs um, is there's a lot of people on the payroll and you wonder, you know, huge coaching staffs, backroom staff. Uh, and I know, for example, when Bath had their pre-season day, a mate of mine told me there was a 106 people in, in Bath tracksuits who were having their photos taken that day. I just don't know what everybody does. I mean, you've got a very high-powered coaching staff at Irish who won't come cheap, and they've got a lot of assistants. As, and I'm not just having to go at Irish here, this is general in the Premiership. Has it grown a bit too large, the ancillary staff? Because you know, rugby is an expensive game anyway because it's such a big squad. You have to carry such a big squad. Um, so did rugby come up? Premiership rugby become a bit bloated, do you think, in the last five, ten years? Uh, possibly, yeah. I mean, like I say, you look now at everything that's happened and I guess bigger off-field teams have actually been a result of bigger on-field teams. You know, squad sizes were maybe 40 to 50. Now they're 60 to 70 if you include, you know, kind of senior academy, academy yeah. and players that can play. So actually, it's very difficult to manage that many people, you know, so you'll have kind of your head coaches who maybe need to look after the top 30. You'll need another set of coaches to look after the middle guys who there's just not enough time in the week to give them the attention and the care that they need. And then you've got your academy players who need a different type of coaching as well. You know, it's not just about off on field, it's about their journey and, you know, even just growing up and just a bit of mentorship in terms of 18 to 21 going from kid in school to actually now you're a full-time professional. So once you start to do that and then that expands, you know, if you've got that many guys, your physio team needs to be able to handle all of them. Your SNC team needs to be able to handle all of them. So very quickly, you go from a squad of 50, 60, 70, you add your off-field staff in, you add your off-field team and you're at 100 plus members and have it right. You know, wages tend to be your biggest outgoing. So it's kind of a knock-on effect, bigger squad, bigger staff, bigger everything. And you end up spending more because, you know, you can't, there's only so many interns you can have. Everybody's after a job. Everyone's got bills to pay, so they need food on the table. So you can kind of see why these squad sizes and, well, staff sizes end up as big as they are. Yeah. This is the knock-on effect fear, right? And it's not just in the domain you're talking about. Topsy, you've spoken about funding and be this in the championship or premiership. But the RFU, if we take premiership clubs for the moment, pay 25 million to the premiership each year, and they've said themselves that they can't keep doing that for failing business models so what does that mean they drop funding and then it just starts the spiral i mean that seems like a bit of a i don't know it just seems like a two irreconcilable incompatibilities really well yeah and i guess the argument would be that again when you've got two separate unions and you've got club versus country rfu will say well we need your players for england internationals and the clubs then say well we pay the players wages and you actually take them off us for large chunks of the season. So actually how would you go about reducing the money? Cause are you going to ask for the players less? No, you're probably going to want them even more. So again, that's been one of the biggest headaches again for forever in terms of the club versus country clash and the overlaps and, you know, your England international, your, your internationals become your biggest your biggest players and your most paid players, but they're not available for you for a majority of the season. They're there at the start, they're there at the business end, but there's a large chunk in the middle. So in terms of value for money, the clubs will say, well, you take our players, they hopefully go and deliver for you, but there has to be compensation for that. So 
you're now saying that you don't want to pay as much. Well, what's the solution then? And that's something they'll need to figure out. Again, you, you hope you you hope that they are hammering away at this new deal, um, the new PGA that finishes June 24, in terms of setting out the map forwards. And who knows, just through all this crisis of losing three teams, you've actually now got a window whereby, right, there's going to be less games. Potentially, there could be less crossover. So you can find whatever that sweet spot is in terms of what the RFU need to invest in both the Premiership and the Championship, hopefully, to get things moving in the right direction again. The clubs have got a very good point there, Topsy. Uh, last time I looked into this, uh, a couple of years back, Saracens would typically get between eighty and £100,000 from the RFU for using Owen Farrell for the season. Well, that doesn't even begin to pay the loss of Owen Farrell for 12, 14 weekends in the season. It's not even remotely economic and fair. So if the RFU did ever want to play hardball and say, we're not going to divvy up this £25 million, the clubs could play very hardball indeed and say, well, you know, we want proper compensation for the international players we reduce, and it might be half a million pounds a season. You know, that's what that would actually be the economic rate for Owen Farrell. So that could, that could get very nasty at these negotiations. Um, but I think a lot of people are on the club side there. Yeah, I, I would agree. And like I said, the clubs are the ones who invest the most. You know, they go out, out and they recruit these players and they take them from boys to men. They upskill them, they develop them, they turn them into internationals and then England take them. And obviously every club wants their individuals to go on and be internationals to be successful. You know, that's you want to see these guys go on and represent you in that way, but there has to be kind of joined up thinking in terms of, and compensation in terms of, right, okay, you're now taking our best players for large chunks of the season. So let's agree on how that's going to work. Um, and it's difficult to now kind of move the goalposts and say, okay, we're now going to give you less. Well, hang on. We're still the ones investing all the time and you're now benefiting from years of hard work that we've done. Of course, you come in and you give them that international elite level coaching, but the process is started by the clubs. So you can't kind of leave, hang them out to dry. It has to be. And this, again, the joined up thinking, the alignment is something that they need to get over. They need to actually start pulling in the same direction so that we don't end up talking again about club versus country, teams going under, because actually that will now help the game start to generate more. Let's actually align our thinking and get both team, both union, Prem Rugby, RFU promoting each other and delivering for each other because you like to think that that will then lead to success on both sides, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Topsy, I just wanted to jump in. It's a little bit of an unrelated point, but I, I really wanted to ask this question. A couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I went on a bit of a rant about London clubs having to move out of London and move into bigger stadiums. And I was wondering, specifically with London Irish, you were obviously, I think, am I right in saying the entire time that you played at the club, uh, you were in Reading? Yeah. What did, what did, what did, what was the thinking around that? I mean, how did people feel about that? Was it always a thing, like a feeling, we need to get back to London? Um, you know, this is like a drain on resources. We're not getting the sort of crowds we should be getting kind of thing. You know, was that was that talked about, or was it was it not really a thing? Um, it was it was talked about. It was um, like I say, I, I played my whole career at Reading, and you know, for me, obviously, it was brilliant. You know, you want to, as we just talked about, you want to come through the academy, progress, get into the first team, and play at the first team stadium. 
but then you get older, you get a bit more involved, invested in the club, especially behind the scenes. And you see, I think I, I don't know the particulars of the move to Reading, but at the mm. time it was an essential move in terms of the club needs somewhere to go and play. But I also know for sure that the deal to play at Reading was not a good one. I mean, oh, I'd love to have the number, but it was something something like for every pound, Irish made 20p. Whereas at Brentford, it was closer to 50, 60p, something like that. So mm. even that, when you stack up into thousands and millions, tells the story. So Irish could invest as much as they wanted to in Reading, but there was only so much they could do. And again you do you, you've seen it it's a short it's a short term like we need somewhere to go and play we need a stadium there's a deal to be done let's do it and you kind of get it done and go right we're okay we're safe but when I kind of heard that I was like man we could sell this place out every single weekend get 24,000 into the Medeski and how much we'd make in comparison like nowhere near enough and because we didn't owe the stadium because we were tenants and you've got rent and bills and you're giving away so much of your revenue it does become very, very difficult. So you can actually mm -hmm. understand why for a lot of the time Irish didn't go up to the cap because I guess they were thinking, right, this is all we can afford. You know, we can't afford to spend on getting in all these internationals. We need to operate within our means. Um, so that's why there was always this drive of actually we do need to get back to London where Irish originated, you know, and again, before my time, but everybody still talks so fondly about when they were playing at Sunbury and people packed in there and the streets getting shut down and it just being like the yeah, absolute party, but trying to get some of that back, trying to be in London, trying to be a bit more accessible, trying to tap into all the Irish communities in and around London. That was a huge vision, um, particularly when Mick Crossan came in 2013. He was like, my dream is to get the club back into London. Yeah, and do you think they slightly there was a slight overestimation of how much of an impact that was going to have? Like, is that re related to the to the sort of Coleman salary thing that we've already touched on? Do you think there was a little bit too much? Because obviously it was massive, massively beneficial from the stats you just outlined. But do you think there was a slight overestimation of of how good it was going to be? I mean, obviously COVID really didn't help as well. Um, well I wouldn't have said overestimation, no, because, again, if I fast forward first, I mean, COVID came in, you know, first year in and they, they moved to the stadium and it was empty. So, you know, that's just no yeah. way to kickstart a new tenure. But if you look at where they were at the end, averaging very good crowds, playing really good rugby, winning fans up and down the country, not just their own, growing new fans, bringing the old fans along. So actually, at the start of something which could have turned into something really, really special, you know, Champions Cup rugby, which they've not had in ages as well, which is going to bring in more crowd, which is going to bring in more revenue, new broadcast deal on the horizon, back in London where they are more accessible. It's easier to get to good stadium atmosphere, the off-field team delivering. So again, in terms of where they were end of May, you're like, right, this could kick on and become something really, really good. And even yes, they don't own the stadium, but they're able to generate so much more money which will allow them to do more things that will attract and build everything up so yeah I wouldn't have said I said that would have been the dream and actually that bit of it was getting closer and closer to reality but then of course you throw in COVID after that you throw in the debts and CBC and government loans and what have you and obviously an owner that's losing more and more money of his own and 
I guess very quickly it turned from, ah, oh, this could be a dream to actually becoming a bit of a nightmare. And, you know, obviously you throw in what happened before Irish with Worcester and Ross going, losing home games, train strikes, where, like you name it, everything kind of came mm. to a head this season as well. Um, the fixtures got rearranged, didn't help. There were clashes, you know, I think their big St. Patrick's Day game, which is normally like they get, clubs get to, I think, pick certain weekends where they like to have fixtures. Irish played Saints, St. Patrick's Day, the same day as Saracens played Spurs at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Mm. So even though you probably don't think there's a, just a slight knock-on effect of terms of we could have been the showpiece game and we weren't. So just so many things like that happened in a short space of time that I think then led to the owner, Mick, saying, I actually can't afford to fund this anymore. Yeah, it really does feel, in comparison to the other two, like it was just the wrong things happening at the wrong time like unlucky i mean we spoke about the deadline earlier but it, it's much more the feeling of this was an avoidable problem and i guess as, as as i already mentioned that that must be what what is quite difficult to process because in your mind were you still very recently were you foreseeing this sort of team that's going to make the playoffs every year sell out brentford all of this stuff yeah absolutely like you know spending a lot of time at the club with the off-field team, just being at the stadium most match days, even like having my bar there, you could kind of, you get a feel and you see the growth, you can see it firsthand. And especially after the first the first season, full crowds where they built and they built, you're like, okay, we can see it, but it probably needs a, a few more things added to it. And then the team starts performing a course, which absolutely helps. They're back in Europe and you, you can start to feel it. Like, I don't mean, know if you guys have been there on a match day, but you, you look around and you can like, okay, this this could happen. This could really happen. But like I say, for so many reasons this season, I mean, even again, like at the time you wouldn't think about it, but I think Worcester were their first home game. And that week, the whole build-up was, is the game going to go ahead? Is it not going to go ahead? That kind of confusion and not knowing actually means that when the game does go ahead, it's so short notice that there's no crowd there. Yeah, and that's just season it. ticket holders and no, yeah. and no one actually buying tickets. You know, so, what's the point? Yeah, so there's things like that. And obviously we've spoken about club versus country. I think they played Leicester Tigers on the same day as England-Wales. And crowd was was nothing. Like, you know, so yeah. again, you're like just so many things like that that have a knock-on effect on the club as a business because, you know, you anticipate for a 10,000 crowd just come out and you get 5,000 and that makes a massive difference. There seems to be a lot more sadness within rather than anger. We had, actually Nick, you were on that Ollie Lawrence episode towards the back end where he was really going after um, the way that was had been handled. So I think, yeah, it, it does seem like just an unhappy combination. But Brendan, I'm going to bring you in here. I don't know if you saw Neil Fistler's, um tweet after it was announced that London Irish were going into administration. There was a little bit of anger there on behalf of the players and the staff. And he said that they were subject to piss taking and lies until the very end. Um, Brendan, what do you think he's referring to there? Um, well, you'd have to ask Fizz that one, to be absolutely honest. Um, I think <laughs> it's probably a natural reaction to very disappointed and worried players. Most of them youngish blokes, not all of them sort of, settled in their lives to ha having their dream ripped away very quickly. And that, as, as we've all been saying, it did seem to happen very quickly compared with others. I've, I've always assumed that Irish, really canny club, great club, 
Um, for me, London Irish like the West Ham of rugby. They're everybody's second club because everybody loves, has always loved the way they play. They love the attitude and the atmosphere. Wherever Irish have played, all their grounds, you get the same welcome uh, and there's the same ambience. So there was a lot of general disappointment, but I imagine the players felt a bit sold down the river. Uh, the speed of it, I think, more than anything. They they were still dreaming of Europe next September, or next October will be after the World Cup, won't it? And suddenly they're out of a job. So I suspect harsh words were said. But where do you proportion, you know, apportion blame? It seems a very complex situation, this one to me, London Irish. As the game generally is letting clubs down. One or two specific things have happened. Lots of bad luck, bad timing. Uh, and it just culminates. And yeah, I imagine it was it got a bit heated and fears with his ear to the ear to the ground. We've undoubtedly picked up on a bit of that. Let's try put some smiles back on some faces by doing the random rugby fifteen tops. It's quick far. It's fifteen quick far questions for you, just about your career in general. If you're good with that, we can get going with it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Good. Nickname. Uh, T money. T money. <laughs> <laughs> And Topsy is technically a nickname, isn't it, as well? Uh, yeah, Topsy, shot for Temi Topper, which is my full name, official name for passports and travel. Um, but yeah, I've been Topsy for forever. So. Best rugby memory? Ooh, um, Heineken Cup semi-final at Twickenham. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a special day. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Ooh, um, trying to chip kick in my own 22, getting charged down, they scored, and then being subbed at half-time. That is brutal. Yeah. Is, that on, is that on YouTube somewhere? No, no. Uh, I've messaged whoever owns YouTube and said, please. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-game tune. Uh, Eric Prids, piano. Post-game meal. Ooh, so post game anything goes. So uh, Chinese or a pizza. Oh, nice. Best player you've played against. Played against uh Dan Carter. Best player you've played with. With um Selala Mapsua. Favorite player right now. Favorite player right now. Um two, Dupont and Colby. Nice. Uh, where are we? Rugby Idol. Uh, Jason Robinson. Favourite stadium. Gonna go with La Defense Arena. Nice. Favourite gym exercise. Squat. Nice. Quite a lot of wingers say squat, actually. Shane Williams said squat. Caden Murley said squat. You build up a lot of speed in the squat. So, yeah. Occupation if rugby didn't exist. Ooh, um, I think I'd have tried to be a lawyer. To be honest. Okay, nice. Superstitions. I don't have any. To be honest, I don't have any. Rugby law, you would change. Oh, jeez, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> rugby law, singular, you would. Um, I tell you what, here's one that I always think about. So that you can kick the ball pretty much from anywhere, and if it's stuck, if it stops dead in the in goal, it's a dropout. That should be a 22-meter. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And lastly, best thing about working in rugby? Just having a front row seat to all the action. Um, again, love doing 
what I do. And yeah, you, you're right in the mix. Um, you pitch side, you're on the pitch, chatting to the players, getting a real deep insight into the game. And yeah, I, I really, really enjoy being able to do it. Can I, that's 15 questions done, by the way. So thank you very much for doing that. Can I pick your selector's brain very, very quickly um, and just get your starting England back three if the World Cup final and England were in it were to be played tomorrow? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, if it was to be played tomorrow, uh, I would go with Freddie Stewart, Anthony Watson, and Henry Arundel. What a shock. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. Because you said tomorrow, if you'd have said if you'd given me a bit more time, I might have changed that back three up. Okay. For the World Cup in six months' time then. <laughs> <laughs> who, who are you Same back three. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I'll accept that. I'll accept that. Um, ten minutes or so left. I just want to ask because Topsy, I I remember you went on the record about believing that the champion for the promotion relegation should be brought back, and I think that was maybe a couple of years ago. You said, or maybe a year ago, that you said that. Um, given that everything everything that has happened, do you think that it's almost all the more reason for it to come back? And if so, how, you know, there's a massive disparity in terms of the championship at the moment. So how does that get corrected? Yeah, it's, uh, again, another one of these issues that, that does need fixing. But, you know, everybody looks at France and what they're doing, and it's very easy to be jealous. But actually, we have the basis for that, because if you look at, you know, rugby has to compete with so many different sports. Um it's not as big as football or whatever, but it does have its own very good, very unique market. You know, it's in all these tubs. And if you look at the championship clubs, you know, Bedford, Nottingham, Jersey, Pirates, there are markets there that love their rugby. So actually, if you can invest a bit more in it, obviously the RFU have stripped that back and actually make, open up the drawbridge so they have a genuine chance of being promoted. Like imagine, it's obviously Irish experienced it twice and, when you went away to these teams in particular, like obviously it was there, you could see stadiums packed out, you know, whatever the capacity was, three, four, five thousand, it was their big day. And actually those clubs, I mean, I don't have this to fact, but looking at it from the outside, they know what they have and they cater to their market. Like I remember Bedford in particular, like whatever the capacity is, it's a sellout for these games where the premiership clubs would come to them because they have a fan base there, a core fan base that love their team, love their stadium and just want to enjoy their rugby. So if you offered them the opportunity to aspire for more, to do it within their means, you'd like to think that half the teams at least would go for it, especially if the funding is there because they're already operating on a model whereby they need to be sustainable. They can't spend too much. They spend what they can afford. So with a bit more investment, they can start to grow organically within that. So then you add in what might happen in the premiership or even if, if you've got that, then actually you can take that to a broadcaster and say, right, we've actually got whatever the number will be now, 20 really strong clubs within their communities. I know we can talk about London and, you know, London having so many teams, but we've got 20 strong clubs within their communities that are actually ripe for development. 
we've got two strong leagues. So let's now try and build this up. So it has it is going to take a bit of work, investment, of course, but if you can get the investment bit right, the marketing bit right, and actually start to tell some of these stories, you know, how many players in the premiership have spent time in the championship? Loads. And they've all loved their time there as part of their development. So the basis for it is there. It's just again, somebody now grabbing it and taking hold of what we do have saying right there is something positive to be done with it so let's actually go after it and get it right you know let's not strip it back and make it impossible and effectively ring fence without saying the word ring fencing um if i've got it right i think there's a playoff coming in season after next um which you might say okay great but you've got five million budget offering against a much lesser budget so it's going to make it very difficult to close that gap but even at the very least give him a chance Give them a chance. Give Jersey a chance. Give Ealing a chance. Give the teams that want to invest a chance. I know Stadium for Cornwall. I don't know if that's still going at the minute, but again, the, the teams, some of the teams have the appetite to want to kick on and do more and they should be allowed. Um, I see no reason why not. Look at Exeter. They're the prime example of a team given being, a, being given an opportunity and taking it all the way. So why should we stop that? It's a big part of rugby. And actually you then start to bring back the communities that feel that they've been disenfranchised because of what's happened over the last few years, feeling that they've been cut away from the game. You know, you want to aspire to be more, do more, and that stretches into your national leagues, national one, national two. The teams are there. They want to get promoted. They will, some of them want to push on. So why not let them do it? Does that involve then for you, <clears throat> first of all, the ring fencing of the championship as you kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, for a couple of years to allow the clubs to build up or do you just think let that drawbridge down now well this is at the out once when did it first go i think this kind of debate around the ring fencing and that i remember at the time i'm pretty sure i said if you could ring fence it for a certain period maybe two three years but with guaranteed investment then yes because you give teams the time to prepare this probably would have been maybe just after covid or just before i can't remember but at that time, you could have done it if you could guarantee the investment because it allows teams a time to build, build their squads, build their infrastructure, look at their stadium and actually say, right, we've got three years to plan properly. Do we really want to go after this or do we not? And then when the drawbridge comes back up in three years time, you, you'll see the teams that were saying like, right, we're ready. Let's go for it. Um, at the time, it would have worked. I'd say now you just need to open it up. Let's open it up and let's let's get to work. I, I think, you know, we, we've had... Yes, there was an adjustment period after COVID, but I think we've had enough years now of, you know, tinkering and playing with things. Let's get back to what it was. And because that will actually, everyone says, grow the game, grow the game. It will actually allow us to tap back into the communities that don't feel that they're a part of what's happening at the top of the game at the minute. I think that's all totally bang on there, Topsy. And there's a slight flip side to that. If you can get the championship like that, invested full of um, ambitious clubs who know that there is something to aim for um the flip side is that then the, the the big fear is the premiership side coming down they think if they go down that's it that's lethal uh it's in in the current climate that's going to be curtains well that can't be the case if you've got a good championship if it's televised and just like i think chris hewitt was saying the other week uh Brody Dirt is friday night friday night is their night and it's all on tv if you could get that for the championship get that tv revenue uh, get the commercial base built up. And yeah, a, a premiership side is relegated and it's not great, but they stick together. There's a vibrant league to go into where they're big, you know, big cats and 
you know, a, a big story. And more often than not, they come back up, don't they? Everybody knows that about the Premiership Club. So if they could just take that fear out of the Premiership Clubs going through the trap door by, you know, giving them a championship that is an absolutely cracking little league in its own right, I think you'd go a long way to sort of evening out that situation and giving us a bit of stability. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say you're right. Because, uh, yeah, the, the fear is the right word in terms of relegation, what it means for the club as a business. But if you get the model right, you can start to allay those fears in terms of, right, OK, yes, you're coming down and yes, you're not playing all the big teams in the Premiership Champions Cup. But actually, the league is well supported. There's a TV deal. So there is enough funding. You can keep your squad together or make, you know, very subtle changes you can bounce back and actually bounce back to even more. You know, we've seen it with Irish, with Saints, with Quinns. All these teams have done it and bounced back and gone on to better. So, you know, it can happen. Are you expecting as well that a lot of... When players get left without a club, obviously names like Tom Pearce and Henry Arundel, etc., they get mentioned and the players that aren't quite so in demand, so to speak, they don't necessarily. Is that say that you're expecting that a lot of players will and should go to the championship now? Well, again, this is it's a hypothetical, but given everything that's happened, you've probably got the most free agents there have ever been who are of premiership quality. So if you could find the funding somewhere and put those guys into the championship, all of a sudden, you've got two really strong leagues. And to say to these guys, obviously, they want to play premiership rugby. Actually, being in championship is no bad thing because there is investment, there is a TV deal, there is ambition and growth for you guys to maybe push on and be a premiership side. So in the short term, you've got a job, you've got employment, you can continue playing rugby. But long term, here's what you guys can aspire to. So, you know. Like I say, some of the some of the top guys will go and they'll fill in the other clubs where there's room in the cap, but there will be a lot of good free agents out there from last year and from this year who are probably waiting around now for late phone calls, for injury dispensation to, to find work. You know, we did see it earlier in the year and we're seeing it again now. So the player pool is there. So let's do something with it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting, actually, because I suppose what you've got is three teams that now are no longer in the premiership and you can use 60-70% of that cohort to bolster the championship and cut that gap that we're talking about. Yeah, and then you add in all the different, the uni pathways in particular, which seem to be going from strength to strength. You know, you could tap into that as well and all of a sudden, like, you know, you, you play England's player pool has always been there, but, you know, if we look at what we have now in terms of good players being spread out, you know, talk about um, Pearson, Trinyamunga, Tarek Afar just going to Saints. Like Saints have just massively strengthened their team through all of this. So that's you know that can happen also in the championship as well. And obviously these guys who are maybe fringe players a little bit will end up playing more rugby, potentially developing. Yeah, the other little... you know younger guys playing more rugby, getting yeah. regular game time, developing, upskilling, taking on the best, but actually just being on the pitch for. 20 25 games a year like there, there's there's no substitute you'll hear that a lot you've got to be out there playing learning failing to improve and get better you've got to be on the pitch getting a feel for the game to understand what works for you and how you improve potential to be a sort of slight silver lining in obviously a very very bleak situation um topsy i think we'll wrap up there um i know you need to go so yeah i we really appreciate you joining us, especially as it's been such a difficult 10 days or so. Um, 
but from a personal obviously you've had a hell of a year um in tv and stuff and from a personal point of view i hope that continues into the summer and into the world cup and yeah it's been great meeting you no i appreciate it thank you guys uh, pleasure to be on um if i can do a quick plug yeah go for it right um so despite everything that's happened obviously the last year i don't know if you see maybe my tweet and my instagram obviously so irish it was their 125th year so they've just released um a book celebrating that 125 years and that's available to pre-order now so i think it's londonirishbook.com um like been inundated with messages just you know the world the feel good and actually the impact that irish have had throughout the league not just their own fans but other fans and that's been quite nice but i think the book will be a fitting way to kind of mark what irish have done and their history so far so if anyone listening fancies uh a present and a way to contribute not just to the foundation but the amateur clubs injured player fund the books are available for pre-order and any orders would be much appreciated so thank you yeah that, that's well said there tops and in fact i've had paddy lennon on the phone this week the author and i'm talking yeah. to him on monday to do a a big sort of piece on it um i mean the, the timing is horribly ironic but it's still an incredible story to tell yeah. and we'll help tell it in the rugby paper no, that would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he's he's put so much into it, and it was. Uh, right, what do we do? And the decision was like, let let's do it. I think it's yeah, it'd be a great it's, memorial. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. Now, celebrate. Right? Yeah, just celebrate all. You'll see some pictures in it, and it will just you'll remember where you were at that moment. Your part in kind of Irish's history. So yeah, yeah, definitely fitting. Yeah, there have been a few of those. There was a tribute video that um was published a little uh. Oh, I don't know, the weekend or something as yeah, well. Yeah, it was, uh, again, two of the best, Bill and Fred, who at the time weren't being paid to do it. But mm. again, you talk about how you invest in a club when you're in it. That was kind of their parting gift to everyone that supported the team and the staff through the last kind of while, almost as a thank you of this is what you've helped build and this is what you've invested in. So, yeah, those guys, they're, they're, they're class, really good guys. Yeah, there's a real connection with the fan base there that I think you know, in light of all this is really sort of standing out, which despite all the bad news is also, you know, it's it's nice to see and obviously nice for you to have had, um, having been a, a, a central part of the club for so long. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Topsy. Great meeting you. Cheers, guys. Appreciate you. Catch you soon. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.